So our New Testament reading is Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17, and it can be found on page 808 of your Pew Bible. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, One Ancient Hope. You might have noticed that there is a bag of flushable wipes up here. Uh, I left those here this morning. If I was a better pastor, I could, I could turn this into a really great object lesson, but I'm going to hand that off to pastors better than myself and subtly throw it here back behind the uh, pulpit and uh, sort of start over. This is what happens when Matthew Penning is on vacation, I think, is stuff like this. <laughs> uh, but it's good to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning, and before we approach this passage of Scripture together, let us come together in prayer. God, our Father, um, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you um, for fellowship. Thank you for the privilege of coming together in one place. Thank you for your word that unites us as the church. And I pray, Father, that these words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage and that through them you would deeply, more deeply, um, apply the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, to our hearts. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, 
In this passage, when we're introduced to John the Baptist, we find him proclaiming this to the crowds. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And perhaps we're, we're surprised by this universal call to repent. Maybe we, we find it a bit presumptuous, a bit condescending, even perhaps a bit embarrassing. I mean, how is it that John can look at this crowd that he doesn't even know personally and tell all of them to repent? How can he assume that all of these persons that have come out to see him need repentance? How can he assume that they need to come and to confess their wrongdoing? Well, the only way that that could be the case is if John is speaking here of something universal, something that's going to apply to each and every person without exception. And in this passage, this is exactly what we find. Because after John's call to repentance, immediately Matthew tells us, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah 40, and in this prophecy that's taken from Isaiah, it immediately continues and says the following, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In fact, in in Luke's account, of uh, Jesus' baptism, we find this whole section of Isaiah actually quoted. And what does this prophecy, what does it tell us about John? Well, again, it tells us that John prepares the way of the Lord. It tells us that John is the one who makes the path straight. John undergoes what we can call, what Isaiah calls, a leveling project. The mountains are brought down. The valleys are brought up. But what does that actually mean? And that brings us back to repentance, because to repent is to recognize that we've done something wrong. It's to recognize that we've fallen short of an ethic. It's to recognize that we failed in some way to live the life that we should have lived. And to call absolutely everyone to repent is to say this is true for every single human being. It's to level any and all people. There are no mountains, there are no valleys, there's only a level path. There are no persons high, and there are no persons low, they're all at the same level. And what does that have to do with repentance? Well, the ethic of God demands that each and every human being love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, and to do this fully and wholly all the time, to love God like this at every instant, to love our neighbor like this, to love every other human being as we love ourselves. that we would actually work to meet the needs of other human beings as intensely as we meet our own, that we would be just as sad and sorrowful for the pains and the struggles and difficulties of other human beings just as we are our own, and and I think this might be the hardest of all, to celebrate and rejoice in their good gifts just as much as we celebrate our own, 
even to the extent that we would celebrate with them and for them when perhaps they've received some position or some honor, some opportunity that both of us were going for, and to rejoice with them just as much as if we ourselves had received that thing. And John assumes, John is confident that we've all fallen short of this ethic, and I would say that's probably a fair assessment. And perhaps when you hear that, you ask, well, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that outrageous? Isn't that unreasonable? Can God really ask us to love him like this? Can God really ask us to love our neighbor like this to this degree all the time? Isn't there just a place for being good enough? And certainly I understand that question. I'm sure we all understand that question. That might be the first question that we're asking right now in our own hearts. But to ask that question means that we are rejecting some absolute and uncompromising notion of goodness and justice and community. If we can speak of, of being good enough, then we don't have to speak of being completely just and completely good. We can fall short and still just be good enough. But John, in his call to repentance, he rejects this. He levels all of us. He shows all of us to be in the same place before this perfect ethic of God. John is telling us that if you don't believe you need to repent, then you have something less than a wholly perfect view of justice, of goodness, of community. Perhaps your first reaction is to call that unfair, but you cannot call it unjust because what else can a perfect standard of justice do but hold all of us guilty of injustice before God? And so John calls us to repent. And if you do scoff at this, your view of justice is not too high, but much too low. If you think you are sufficiently just and good and community-oriented on your own, you must have a relative and less than complete view of justice and goodness and community. And you might ask, isn't this too harsh? Doesn't this put us in a losing position right from the start? Doesn't this make life one long defeat? Doesn't this set us up for failure? And this is a very important question, and there is a Christian answer to this question. But before going there, I want to point out that this is the very position that our modern mindsets and our modern practices actually put us in. At present, all of us are called to live the best lives we possibly can. We're called to live holy, authentic lives of fulfillment at each and every turn. We're called to make our lives like the movies. We're called to make every single moment count for everything we can. We're called to always be improving our careers, our romances, our accomplishments, our personal networks, our status. We are always told that where we are and, and what we are is not enough. We're called to carry a burden that no human being was meant to bear. And this begins early. Now, even preschools have selective admissions process. Even by three years of age, you might have already missed the chance to succeed as much as you possibly could. The scholar and writer Matt Feeney, he wrote an article for The New Yorker a few years ago, and it looked at the way that the admission process to top universities has come to affect parenting and, and growing up. And he says, in this picture, we actually find a deep, deep 
irony because universities speak of applicants wanting to be, wanting to show their authentic person, the authentic, the real person behind the application. The universities want to hear the heartfelt, passionate, vulnerable voice of the students come through these application materials. But this authenticity is wholly determined by the university. Feeney writes, with so many applicants and so few open slots, and such a sought-after benefit to hand out, admissions deans realized they could literally tell their teenage applicants how to be a person. And at the time that Feeney wrote this article a few years ago, one, per one particular thing that admissions boards, they love to see on an application, was that the student had started a nonprofit. Yes, they wanted a high schooler to start their own nonprofit organization. But the plot thickens because Feeney warns that even as he was writing this article, that particular accomplishment was already starting to lose its attractiveness in the eyes of the admissions boards. So, yes, start a nonprofit, but even that still might not be authentic enough. And of course, this whole application process is creeping into more and more of life. Feeney points out that we think of the traditional college application that students often complete, uh, you know, sometime around the beginning of their senior year, but now there, there's an alternative offered by many of the top schools, something called the, the Coalition app. And it takes a portfolio form, and from ninth grade onwards, students are uploading materials to this portfolio application, making their whole high school experience one long application process. As the dean of one such school says in support of this new application, let's think long term about my identity and what my application will look like. So yes, we want to see your authentic self, but of course we're here to tell you what that authentic self should be. We want to hear your true voice, which of course is one and the same with what we want you to say. We want, to, we want you to make your own identity regardless of what anyone else might think, but of course if it doesn't measure up to our exacting standards, then we're going to have to reject it. No one is meant to bear this weight, especially the youngest in our midst. And this should also open up our eyes to all of the pressures that children and teenagers are constantly bearing in our modern moment. For instance, reflecting on the harsh criticism that's often lobbed at younger generations, literature professor Alan Noble, he says his experience is actually much different than what we often hear in the media, and this is a word for us to take to heart specifically, given our location on a college campus. Noble says, and, and this quote is a bit long, but it's, it's very good. He says, When a young person stops coming to class, binge watches friends for 36 hours, and can't seem to get out of bed, it's almost entirely because the student cares too much, not too little. They don't choose to tap out of life because they think winning is meaningless. They tap out because they're taught that winning means everything, and they cannot envision a path to winning. If you live in a hyper-competitive society where you know you cannot possibly compete against those with biological or economic advantages, why bother playing the game? Rather than failing to accept responsibility, they find an alternative space to pursue existential justification. If I cannot compete in graduate school, I might be able to compete in a video game. 
If I can't win the love of a desired spouse, I can find a sense of belonging in porn or in romance stories. In this system, there are winners and there are losers, and the very few winners take all. And if you haven't attended the right preschool, if you haven't started a nonprofit by the time you're in 10th grade, if you're only starting your college application process at the beginning of your senior year, well, chances are you're not going to be winning as much as you should. And so why not just give up? There are mountains and there are valleys. There are those on top and there's, there are those on the bottom. And these increasing stakes of childhood, well, they're only making the mountains higher and the valleys lower. And to be sure, adults feel this too. This fights against contentment. This fights against commitment to a particular place and location and congregation. We're always wondering, how could I have done better? How could I have been more successful? Yes, you know, I suppose my life is okay, but what if I moved to a new location? What if I got a new job? What, what if I got a new spouse? What if I got a new degree? Maybe I could climb up a little higher on that mountain. And, and otherwise, you know, if you're not climbing up the mountain, you're just slipping further down the valley. And with these things in mind, let's return to that earlier question about the need to repent before the perfect ethic of God, before his perfect goodness and justice. But let's ask that same question about our modern culture of winning and losing. Don't these cultural standards put us in a losing condition right from the start? Don't they make life one long defeat in which we're simply set up for failure? Yes. Yes. This whole set of cultural expectations and the weight that it places upon each and every one of us, and especially the young, it absolutely sets us up for one long defeat and failure. And even if you do master the application process, that will only be the first step. Your whole life will be one long application process. For this job, for this romantic partner, for this acclaim, for this notoriety, for this applause, for this level of fitness and beauty and physical health. And eventually, you will retire, your body will age, you will die, and you will be forgotten. Eventually, you will not make the cut according to the exacting standards of our culture. Eventually, you will fall off the mountain and fall into the deepest depths of the valley. Yes, be yourself, but do so by bearing a weight that no human being possibly can. So then, is this a call to repent? Absolutely not. This is a call to either win or lose, and eventually, absolutely everyone will lose. This is not leveling mountains and valleys. It's making them higher and lower. But John, John's ministry is leveling all of us. He's saying that we're all in exactly the same position before the perfectly just and loving ethic of God. And he calls us to repent. But repentance means that judgment need not be the final verdict. We often think of repentance as a sort of sour or cruel, harsh, heartless word. But nothing is further from the truth because to speak of repentance is also to speak of forgiveness. It's to suppose that things can be different. There is no repentance in our culture. 
only losing in temporary winning, which is as much as to say there is only losing. You always have to do more. You always have to compete with one more person. You're not climbing a mountain. What you're doing is trying to make your way up a landslide. It's impossible. And our culture does not call us to repent. It only says, move on. I've seen enough. But repentance, repentance is what characterizes the ministry of John. Think about high mountains and low valleys. They, they block our way. They keep us from traveling, and so we cannot get where we should go, cannot get where God is calling us to go. And in this series, we've talked a lot about the theme of exile, and the theme of exile permeates the gospel of Matthew. The people of God are not really home. They're not with God. They're currently separated from God. And John's ministry shows this because John preaches and baptizes in the wilderness. John ministers in exile. But John levels. He clears the way, and he does so to prepare the path of return. The path of return to God. The mountains and the valleys are leveled, and the path is set before the people. They can see their homeland. And so then, is, is repentance, is that the path is repentance the path that brings us back to God? Yes and no. And, and here we have to tread very, very carefully. What causes our mountains and valleys? Well, it's competition. It's seeking to win and to make the other lose. I'm climbing up. I'm putting my, my head or my foot on the head of someone else so I can get a little higher. They can go a little lower. It's pride. It's elevating myself and pushing the other down. And strictly speaking, if repentance is the path back to God, simply my repentance, then all I need is a bit of help. All I need is a little boost. I just need a bit of level ground. And if that's the case, we're actually right back to pride. I've, I've said this before, but, but I've heard this, this, this kind of approach called Home Depot theology. You can do it. God can help. But that's not the Christian religion. If that's the case, then coming back, we're still creating mountains and valleys. I'm the one that made the journey. I'm the one that traveled back. I, 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 me, me, me. Thanks, God, for showing me my sins and all the ways I fall short. Thanks for showing me the way, God. I'll take it from here. You, you go on ahead, God, and I'll just I'll catch up. But that's not repentance. That's only a new form of religious pride. That's a religious form of the, uh, of the admissions process. That's, that's only a religious form of winning and losing. And this is not Repentance, this does not end our exile. It does not end our separation from God. Because recall something very important about the way that John levels. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. It's not our way that's prepared. It's the way of the Lord. This is not the way that we travel. 
This is the way that God travels. Yes, we are in exile, but this path is not for us to come back to God. This is the path by which God comes to us. God comes to us in our exile. God comes to us in the wilderness. As Isaiah says of the ministry of John, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. All of us have been leveled. All of us have been brought to the same place so that the glory of the Lord might be revealed and that we ourselves might see it. God is coming. God is coming to you in your exile. God is coming to you in your separation from God. And only by realizing all of us are equally guilty before God will that make us able to see the glory of God. Because the glory of God comes to us in the place of exile. And even John himself must learn this. We read, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John actually wants to stop Jesus from being baptized by him. John wants to be baptized by Jesus instead, but Jesus refuses. If John simply needed to come to Jesus and to be baptized, then John would be the one walking the way. God would not be coming to him. John would be the one coming to God. And this whole thing catches John completely off guard. Why would you come to me, Jesus? Why would I baptize you? No, Jesus, let me come to you. Let me come to you and you can baptize me. Let me come to you and and, and that will make things right. Let me walk out of exile on my own two legs. John still does not understand that the way that's been prepared is the way of the Lord. It's the path that the Lord travels. And if John had simply come before Jesus and made things right by an act of cleansing and acknowledging his sins, then John would be the one who was walking the way. If John was just sorry enough for his sins, then John could make everything right with God. And this, this is the God that we expect God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'll live better now. I'll pray and read the Bible more. This time, I really will, God, make it all the way to you. But what does Jesus do? He stops John. He doesn't let John come to him. Instead, he comes to John in wilderness, in exile. He surprises John. He makes John uncomfortable. Why would John baptize Jesus? This is not how religion is supposed to work. Why would God put himself in the place of sinners? Well, remember what causes our mountains and our valleys. It's pride. It's elevating ourselves and pushing down the other. It's winning and making others lose. And so what is sin? Well, in an important sense, It's the process of raising ourselves by pushing down others. 
We're climbing up these mountains and we're pushing the heads of others deeper down into the valley. And the ancient African bishop Augustine, he's, he's helpful here. And a key principle that structures much of his theology is just this. The pride of humanity is healed by the humility of God. The pride of humanity is healed by the humility of God. And if sin is humanity trying to raise ourselves at the expense of the other, even at the expense of God himself, then humility must be the very opposite, and the greatest of all humility must be that of God himself. Think about it. In Christ, God the Son became human. He, the one who is higher than any mountain, descended into the deepest valleys of his society. He came into a poor family. He was raised by a widowed mother. He had no physical form that we should admire him. He lived far away from the cosmopolitan sinners of the Roman Empire. He lacked the educational resources of the societal elite. He suffered hunger and thirst and sickness. He had no place to lay his head. He, be he was betrayed by his closest of friends. He suffered death on the cross, and then he descended into the deepest valley of all, to Sheol, to the place of the dead. If sin is humanity seeking to raise ourselves at the sake of the other, then salvation is God seeking to lower himself for the sake of the other. Only God's humility can heal human pride. And this humility, it is the very glory of God. God's glory is not pushing down the other, but coming to the other in their greatest need, meeting that need and identifying wholly with them. Christ is not just God come to save sinners. Christ is also God come to be in the very place of sinners. And this is why Jesus was baptized Jesus, who has been presented as God's son as Israel, further identifies with God's people by undergoing a figurative act of repentance on their behalf. Jesus, of course, is, is sinless, but he receives the baptism of repentance from John. He identifies himself with sinners, and he does so in order to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean? Well, it's the Christian conviction that Christ has lived the perfect life of justice and goodness and community before both God and neighbor on our behalf. But he not only lived the life that we should have lived on the cross, he took the judgment that we deserve for not doing so, for pushing down others for the sake of our own winning. He was pushed down so that we might be lifted up. And here in this, pet, this picture of baptism, we get a sense of what this will look like. The sinless one undergoes a symbolic act of repentance. The sinless one does what only the sinner should do. God himself does what only the ungodly should do. And this catches John wholly by surprise, and it should catch us by surprise too. Because in a sense, Jesus here repents for us. His hatred of sin, his grief and sadness over each one of our sins is greater than we could ever fathom, and it rests in his great love for us. Jesus is telling us that even our repentance will still be tainted with pride. 
But Jesus is telling us, let my hatred of and grief over sin stand for yours. Let me repent for you. Yes, you must repent, but let me take your act of repentance and make it spotless, make it free from all pride. Just as I have lived the perfect life for you, if you will only receive it by faith, so too have I mourned over your sin perfectly for you, if you will only give me your repentance. Yes, you must repent, but even the sincerest repentance you can muster is stained and tarnished with pride and the assumption that you are still a little higher than all those other people in the valley, that you still deserve salvation a little bit more than this or that person. But Jesus can perfect our repentance because he is humanity as it should be. But even more, he himself has tasted the very depths and effects of sin. He knows it, and he hates it. He knows it, and it breaks his heart. Because he, in his humanity, was exiled from God. Christ know what, knows what sin does to us. He has experienced it, and on the cross, he exclaims, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Christ speaks here the words that only we should speak as he suffers the judgment that only we should suffer. And so Christ fulfills all righteousness. And he does so not by doing just everything a human is called to do, but everything a sinful human is called to do. But there is no valley of unrighteousness that Christ's mountain of righteousness cannot fill. Augustine writes, Christ came down to us both to teach us the way and to become the way. This is why he did not disdain to be baptized by his servant for our sake. John prepares the way of the Lord, but this is the way that the Lord travels to come and to find us. Religious teachers or admissions boards or any kind of gatekeeper, they're happy to show us the way. They give us impossible standards, but they don't lift a finger to help us on that way. But Christ, Christ does not just show us the way back to God. Christ himself is God taking that path to bring us back to himself. And this covers absolutely everything. Christ really does fulfill all righteousness. Because in a sense, again, Christ even repents for us. Christ mourns over our sins for us. And so true repentance is even repenting of our repentance. It's knowing that we don't hate sin as we ought, that we don't love God as we ought. Proper repentance by faith is acknowledging our absolute need upon Christ Jesus. And so repentance, like all of salvation, is ultimately a matter of receiving. And what should be our response to this humility of God? It should be the utmost humility. 
And I don't often put things in these terms, but, but I think it needs to be said in light of our modern moment with all of its outrage and finger-pointing and blame-shifting and fear-mongering and competition and rampant self-righteousness. In light of all these things, I need to ask you, if you do not have a spirit of humility, have you actually received Christ? If you lack humility, have you actually been healed by the humility of God. Christians should be growing in humility every single day. If not, then there's a deep problem either in our acceptance or our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you think that Christ has only come to show us the way and you have not realized that Christ Jesus is himself the way. And so then does all this mean that our work and our vocation, that they don't matter, that they're not important? Absolutely not. They matter deeply. But these two, like all of the Christian life, must be approached from humility. Consider, for example, the, um, the example of C.S. Lewis. Lewis, he was a great intellect and, and scholar, but throughout his career as a professor at Oxford, certainly one of the, the, the top institutions of learning in the world, he was continually denied a chair, and despite his serious academic work, in Renaissance and medieval literature, he remained only a tutor there his whole time, which was most of his career, before he finally took a position at, at Cambridge. Many of his suits, they were from his father, and, and not only did they not quite fit right, but by that time, they were rather shabby. And we have a whole book, and, and I'm sure this is only a fraction of, of what he did, but a whole book of letters that he wrote specifically to children. Lewis studied and taught because he cared deeply for learning and his students not to win and climb the professional ladder. Lewis felt no need to impress others with his wardrobe or style, and Lewis believed it no insult but a great privilege to use his intellect to answer the questions of children, persons who certainly have little if no social capital. And in light of all that, what characterized Lewis's life? Well, a deep, enduring, playful, and serious joy. Having been saved by the sacrificial service of God, Christian humility counts it a privilege to serve the other. And if you ever feel that some service is beneath you, remember that the God of the universe has gone lower to serve you to save you specifically, to save you by name, and let that melt the hardness of your heart. And if you want to start a nonprofit, if there's a need that you can meet, by all means, do that. But like Lewis, do it to serve the other. Do it to steward the gifts, the talents that God has given to you. Don't do it to simply climb up the social mountain. And so let us be humble in all things. We have the very favor and love and acceptance and approval of God himself because we have received Christ. There's no need to try to strive for the verdict of society. And this is true both for us and for our children. Christ really has done it all. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has even hated and mourned over our sins 
for us. And so when he comes out of the water, he hears the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And this gives us a picture of Christ's salvation. God comes to us as a loving Father seeking out his children who have exiled themselves in pride. And what must we, what must we do to be saved? Well, simply receive this Father. Simply put down our pride and our tantrums and the silly toys that we cling to with all of our might and let this Father pick us up like the children that we are. And then he will say over us the words that Christ has won for us, words richer than can be given by any admissions board. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. This is salvation. This is the way of the Lord. This is God's gift of everything in Christ. Put down your pride. Let the loving Father pick you up and receive the great love that he has for his children. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that the path that you prepare is not the path that we must walk. Lord, but it is the path that you yourself walk to us. We know, Lord, that it is a path of suffering. In order to come to us, you have given the life of your only begotten Son, and you have done it for us. Lord, open our eyes to the blessing, to the gift, to the deep act of humility that that is. Please, Father God, help us to receive that more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.